I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit this morning because I'm getting a little bit um, scientific in my intro this morning, and I'm talking about quantum physics. So uh, just bear with me. I do dumb it down a little bit, a little bit on, and explain it and uh, give a simplified version, but a little bit at the start is a little bit uh, heavy. So sit back, relax, and listen. Okay. So one of the most revolutionary discoveries in the world of quantum physics was made by John Stuart Bell, who's the gentleman standing at the blackboard there, not the oak with his feet on the desk smoking a cigar. He's a physicist, or he was a physicist, at the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland. And he essentially disproved the principle of local causes, which states that the relationship between particles must be mediated by local forces. Bell's research seemed to indicate that regardless of distance, everything in the universe is interconnected. Albert Einstein called Bell's research spooky action at a distance. So I'm going to explain it now. I'm going to dumb it down for all of us, because even I needed to try to figure it out. So the next slide is Bell's theorem. So try to figure that one out. Do you remember that one from school? Okay. So let me try to explain it this way. We generally communicate by talking, in which case our voices produce sound waves that carry information at about 1,127 kilometers an hour. So the length of time it takes for you to hear me depends on the distance between us. The fastest communication signals are light waves, which like radio waves, carry information at approximately 299,338 kilometers a second. So here's what you need to understand. Almost all of classical physics rests upon the assumption that nothing in the universe can travel faster than the speed of light. We all know that, that the speed of light is the fastest thing in the universe. Am I right? But recent experiments have shown that if two subatomic particles shoot into space as the result of a subatomic reaction, they always seem to influence each other no matter how far they travel. What happens to one particle happens to the other particle superluminally or faster than the speed of light. The technical term for this is instantaneous non-locality. It simply means that there seems to be an invisible link between all particles. And that's Bell's theorem. The link defies space. Particles can be in opposite corners of the universe. And the link defies time. It's an instantaneous connection that defies the speed of light. And this discovery has revolutionary ramifications. But let me state the obvious. Bell's theorem redefined what is and what is not possible. Classical physics held that nothing could exceed the speed of, speed of light. But Bell's theorem has proven that we live in a non-local universe with superluminal connections. Okay. But I'm here to share that Jesus redefined what is and what is not possible. He said, all things are possible. And because we are human, and because we sometimes need to hear the same thing 
in a different way. He also said, nothing is impossible. But he didn't just talk the talk and walk the walk. He trafficked in the impossible. He interrupted weather patterns. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine. He hardwired a blind man's brain, installing synapses between the optical nerve and the visual cortex. Jesus walked on water and walked through walls. He turned energy into matter. He made the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute talk, and the lame walk. He raised people from the dead, and then he himself rose from the dead. That's a pretty impressive set of miracles, isn't it? And it's easy to say, okay, Lynn, that's Jesus. What does it have to do with me? And the answer I have for you is everything. John 14 verse 12 says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Jesus redefined what is and what is not possible. That is what these miracles represent. A redefinition of possibility. Jesus said, everything is possible to him who believes. Everything is possible to him who believes. To a newborn, walking is impossible. Newborns have not developed the necessary motor skills or strength, but give them a year, you can't stop them, can you? Sometimes time is the only difference between what is possible and what is impossible. There's a quote that says, there are problems that are impossible if you think about them in two-year terms, which everyone does, but they're easy if you think about them in 50-year terms. To a five-year-old who hasn't learned addition and subtraction, even the simplest math problems are next to impossible. But send them to school for a few weeks, give them a few math classes, and they'll come up with a simple solution to that impossible problem. Sometimes knowledge is the only difference between what is impossible and what is possible. Humans can't walk through walls. I've seen a few try walk through sliding glass doors, but that doesn't work either. But what is impossible to me is easy to subatomic neutrinos. They whiz right through walls. To a neutrino, atoms in a wall aren't close together. They are infinitely far apart. And sometimes size is the only difference between what is impossible and what's possible. In the spiritual realm, faith is the only difference between what is impossible and what's possible. It's a developmental issue. Impossibilities disappear as we develop our faith. Soren Kierkegaard said, if I, to, if I were to wish for anything, I should not wish for wealth and power, but for the passionate sense of what can be, for the eye, whichever young and ardent, sees the possible. Pleasure disappoints, possibility never. And what wine is so sparkling, what's so fragrant, what's so intoxicating as possibility? From a human perspective, there are degrees of difficulty. We have small problems and big problems, small miracles, big miracles. But from God's perspective, 
there are no degrees of difficulty. In Jeremiah 32, 27, the Lord asks a question. Is anything too hard for me? We tend to think of prayer requests as having degrees of difficulty. But there's one problem with that. To the infinite, to God, all finites are equal. There is no big or small, easy or difficult, possible or impossible. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, records one of the most improbable miracles in Scripture. So I've got it up there. I've broken it up a little bit, so just bear with me as we go through. One day, the group of prophets came to Elisha and told him, As you can see, this place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River, where there are plenty of logs. There we can build a new place for us to meet. When they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. But as one of them was chopping, his axe head fell into the river. He said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. I'd like you to notice the verb tense. This apprentice prophet uses the past tense. As far as he's concerned, this axe, this axe head is as good as gone. He's regarded this axe head's demise as being final. He had no expectation whatsoever that it could be retrieved. It's at the bottom of the river. And I think in his plea to Elisha, he wants a little mercy. He's looking for a little sympathy. But in that moment, he's not expecting a miracle. He didn't have a category for what's about to happen. Iron axe heads don't float. Or do they? Now here's what I love about this story. If I'm Elisha, and I put myself in his shoes for a minute, I feel bad for the guy who borrowed the axe. He was trying to do his part. He was trying to help out cutting down some trees so they could build a new school for the prophets. So maybe I let him borrow my axe. Maybe I help him get a new one. But it wouldn't even cross my mind to pray that the axe head that fell into the river would float. But I'm sure you can tell that the wheels are turning in Elisha's mind. Because then he asks the question, where did it fall? What difference does it make? It's at the bottom of the river. That doesn't stop Elisha. And we carry on. Where did it fall, the man of God asked. When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water. Then the axe head rose to the surface and floated. Grab it, Elisha said to him, and the man reached out and grabbed it. I think his apprentice prophet was so surprised to see what he was seeing that he must have just stood there. He must have been in shock. And finally, Elisha has to say to him, don't just stand there. I've prayed this thing to the surface. Grab it before it sinks again. But the King James Version of the Bible has the best version of this line. And the iron did swim. And the iron did swim. I'd like to make a couple of observations. Miracles can, can't be taught. They can only be believed. Miracles can't be planned. They can only be experienced. And here's the irony of the story. These apprentice prophets were building a bigger school so more prophets could be taught by Elisha. And while they're building a place to learn, God gives them a course in miracles. It's almost like God says, 
While you're busy building your school, why don't I teach you something that can't be learned in a classroom? So the greatest class taken and the greatest lesson learned happens when they're building a school for profits. The greatest lessons learned are really learned in a classroom because they can't ever be taught. They can only be experienced. And it usually starts with an impossible situation, like a borrowed axe head falling into a river. It's not how we'd write the script. It's not even how we'd write the scripture. But we're not the author of faith, are we? And if we're honest, this isn't a life and death situation. Yes, it's a borrowed accent, and when you borrow something, you should really give it back. And he lost it. But I know lots of worse stuff that's happened to lots of other people. And it may sound crazy. Doesn't it seem like you should save such an amazing miracle for a little bit of a bigger tragedy? I'd put this miracle in the category of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding party. Why waste your first miracle on helping a bride and groom save face because they didn't stock enough wine for the reception? I think it says something about God. It tells me that God cares about the little things, the wedding parties and the borrowed axes. Nothing is too small for God. John Newton, the slave trader turned songwriter, once penned these words in a poem. And this is the last verse of that poem. Not one concern of ours is small if we belong to him. To teach us this, the Lord of all, once made iron to swim. And this story ranks as one of my favorite miracle stories in scripture because it's absolutely ridiculous. Can you hear Elisha praying? Dear God, I know that iron axids have a density of 7.2 grams per cubic centimeter. I know that at body temperature, no liquid has a viscosity as low as water. But please defy the laws of physics and do what has never been done before and make this iron axe head float. Can you hear him praying that? Have you ever had someone say something and you're unsure if they're joking or serious? Happens to me weekly. They sound half serious, so you don't know what facial expression is appropriate. Will Smith's one here is like perfect. So you get in one of these half smiles. It's one of those smiles that can go in either direction. Pained, happy, confused, don't know what you're talking about. Depending on the additional information that comes next. And I wonder if Elisha's apprentice prophet in that moment wonders if Elisha's even serious. And I can hear Elisha saying to him, let's pray that God would make it float. And the apprentice goes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I'm going to come right out and say it. I like people who pray for iron axeheads to float. I love being around people who ask God to do absolutely ridiculous things because they have that much faith in him. And I want to be around people who stretch my faith. I want to be around people whose faith defies the laws of physics. And that's precisely why they were building a bigger school. Elisha's faith was magnetic. And here's the conclusion I've come to. God doesn't answer all the prayers we don't pray. In James, we read, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. 
Most of us have never seen an iron axe head float because we've never prayed for it. Most of us live way below the level of our God-given potential because we're thinking small, we're living small, and we're dreaming small. And God is too big to fit into our small boxes. In the 1930s, a graduate student from UC Berkeley named George Danzig was late to class one day. The mathematics professor had written two problems on the blackboard. Danzig thought they were the homework assignment. It was the most difficult homework assignment he'd ever been given. Night after night, he tried solving the two problems. It took him nearly a week to finally figure them out. And he finally turned in his homework assignment, and he thought he'd get a bad grade because he was late. A few weeks later, he heard a pounding on his door in the early morning. He was surprised to see his maths professor standing there. And his professor said to him, George, you solved the problems. George said, of course I did. They were our homework assignment. The professor said, that wasn't your homework assignment. Those were two of the most famous insolvable problems in mathematics. The world's leading mathematicians have been trying for years to solve the two problems you solved in a few days. George Danzig, who later became a professor at Stanford University, said, if someone had told me that they were two famous unsolved problems, I probably wouldn't even have tried to solve them. If you don't think it can be done, you won't even try. You've got to believe it to achieve it. George Danzig solved two unsolvable problems because he didn't know it couldn't be done. Elisha prayed for the axe head to float because he didn't know it couldn't be done. Peter walked on water because he didn't know it couldn't be done. Little boy with two loaves of bread and five fish gave them to Jesus because he didn't know that they couldn't feed 5,000 people. Mark Nepo said birds don't need ornithologists to fly. Birds don't need ornithologists to fly, and God doesn't need theologians to do miracles. I think sometimes we analyze and categorize and theorize and formulize instead of just letting God be God. God isn't looking for people to tell him what he can't do. He's looking for people who believe there is nothing he can't do. And here is the fundamental mistake we make in approaching Scripture. We mistakenly think that the purpose of Scripture is to give us knowledge. That's just a byproduct, but it isn't the ultimate goal. The purpose of Scripture is to give us faith. And here's the sad truth. The Christian world tends to be divided into two camps. The knowledge camp and the faith camp. We need knowledge, but the end goal needs to be faith. And faith takes us further than knowledge. It allows us to believe the impossible. And there's an amazing picture of this in Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is having a crisis of faith. And it's easy for us to read this story because we know the final outcome. We know that Abram and Sarah eventually have a child named Isaac. We know their family becomes a nation. But we didn't have to wait 14 years for God to fulfill the promise. In Genesis 15 verse 1, the Lord speaks to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. And Abram says, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? 
But then God reasserts his promise in verse 4. No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own to inherit everything I'm giving you. Then God does something interesting. He takes Abram on a little field trip. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord brought Abram outside beneath the night sky and told him, Look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that, too many to count. Abraham believed the Lord. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now you've got to put yourself in this story. Abraham's indoors, and God takes him outdoors. When he was in his tent, all he saw was his man-made ceiling. God takes him outside and tells him to look into the expanse of sky that stretches billions of light years in every direction. There are two vantage points in this story. Abram was inside the tent. He was focused on his own inability. He was focused on his own circumstances. So God gives him a new vantage point. God helps Abram see beyond his man-made ceiling. The man-made ceiling obscured his vision. The furthest he could see was his ceiling. Abraham's faith had been reduced to the size of a large tent. And Abraham did what so many of us do. We put a ceiling on what God can do. We put a ceiling on his love and power and wisdom. But God helps Abraham refocus on his supernatural ability by making him look up into the night sky. God gets Abram's eyes off his circumstances and helps him refocus on the promise of God. And that is where all of us live our lives, between our human circumstances and the promises of God. What we decide to focus on will make all of the difference in this world and the next. F.B. Mayer may have said it best. Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God. Faith puts God between us and our circumstances. One more thought. Abram looked up and saw hundreds of stars and must have been amazed. All he wanted was one son. What Abram didn't know as he looked up into the night sky was the fact that there were millions and billions of stars invisible to the naked eye. And God delivered on his promise. And he didn't do it based on the limits of Abram's vision or knowledge. He didn't just give Abram a family of a hundred he didn't just give him a nation of millions. He gave him billions of spiritual descendants, descendants of faith. According to the book of Romans, everybody who is in a relationship with Christ is a child of Abraham. At last count, we numbered two billion. Abraham could barely believe God for the hundreds of stars he could see with the naked eye. But God had much bigger plans for Abraham. And believe you me, God has much bigger plans for each one of you. God doesn't fulfill his promises to the limits of human knowledge or power. God does what he does so well. He does so super abundantly. Super abundantly more than we can even ask or imagine. It didn't happen overnight. There were 14 years of second guessing between when the promise was given and fulfilled. That's 168 months, 728 weeks, 5,110 days. But God's promises have no expiration dates because his power has no limits. 
So my question for you this morning is this. What ceilings are you placing on God? What man-made ceilings have you placed on him? What is keeping you from believing the impossible? And I'm giving you a homework assignment this week. I'd like you to read Genesis 15, verse 1 to 6, and then I'd like you to take a field trip. I'd like you to go outside and look into the night sky and take the man-made ceiling of what God can do in your life. That's what faith is. It's getting outside the tent, removing the man-made ceiling, looking up into the expanse of the space, looking up into the sky, seeing the stars, believing that the promises of God are more real than your circumstances. Please, can you do a little bit of African stargazing this week? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to more. More than we can ever imagine. More than we can even comprehend, Lord. You've called us to dream bigger. To exceed our wildest imaginations. And Father, you've been faithful in your promises. And you will always be faithful. Lord, all we've got to do surrender our will to yours but father we pray that our faith would increase as we seek to know you more but father even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed your promises still come true and father we all have something that's impossible in our lives something that we're believing for. And Lord, we remove the man-made ceiling that we've placed on our lives. And we humbly come before you again, Lord. And we bring it to you. Trusting like Abram that in your perfect timing your promises will come true. Lord, we believe that you can make iron axe heads float. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.